Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. And in this episode, we have Cheryl Atkinson, who is an esteemed colleague of mine, and she's probably uh, one of the more decorated profs. She's also a, you are a Frake as well, F-R-A-I-C of architecture as well. Um, And Cheryl has been teaching for, well, I would say she's been teaching generations of architects too, and she's also a very well accomplished practitioner in her own right. So Cheryl, do you mind introducing yourself, please? Okay. Um, Well, I'm a faculty member at Ryerson, first and foremost. Um, I've been teaching there for about 10 years. Prior to that, I was in practice for 18 years with Teeple Architects as an associate and started there when the firm was just three, three or four people. I've also had a practice on my own and currently have a, uh, my own small practice um, and uh, mostly doing residential projects of various sizes. Um, and right now I'm working on a project with a, a small developer that's we're, we're trying to advocate for infill housing in, um, in single family neighborhoods where, uh, where we're trying to pack in more houses and make things more efficient and affordable. So we've got a site where there was a single family house and we're putting, putting nine, actually 10 units on it. So uh, and trying to do it all within the zoning bylaw, which is tricky. But. And this is all in your own individual practice while also juggling all your teaching obligations, while also being the associate chair for mobility and also teaching a grad studio, I believe, at the same time. And of course, congratulations, you're also dealing with a more bustling family from what I gather nowadays. Yeah, I just became a grandmother. Uh, well, I didn't ask you to be dating yourself, but yes, yes. <laughs> you, 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 yeah, you Six-week-old uh, little daughter, uh, granddaughter, who's adorable in England, unfortunately. So, well, just funny. Daily when, when, pictures of her. Well, it, it's kind of funny because um, I, I just get emails uh, on on the show about like people asking questions because they knew that you were going to be here, and uh, I, I should mention that a couple of students had said, "Hey, if you're going to talk to Cheryl, just make sure she's okay," because they were concerned that you went to travel. Uh, yeah. So, so see, the kids care. But uh, let's just get back a little bit because you, you skimmed through a lot of what you've done. And I think it'd be worth just going back a little bit and saying, so your journey, you, you went and studied architecture and then you subsequently uh, just went straight into practice or did you kind of uh, take time to take a lap year? Did you do other studies? How did, how did you jump into uh, start a Teeple after you graduated? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't start at Tiple right away. Right. Um, I went to Waterloo and they had a co-op program. So I, uh, started working in second year co-op at Diamond and Schmidt. Um, I was the office girl. I was driving prints around and, uh, picking up packages and things like that, which was the only jobs available in, in, uh, for second year students at that time. Oh um, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, but, so I worked there and, um, until I graduated, and then I worked at um, a couple other small firms, Olson Warland um, mm-hmm. and Quadrangle, the early version of Quadrangle. And, <laughs> uh, uh, then I practiced on my own mm-hmm. for a bit, and, um, and then a res- doing residential projects, and then the recession hit, and in the early 90s and I, uh, I went to get registered. So I, I worked on a competition with Steve and Chris Radigan for mm-hmm. the near City Hall and, um, and there was no work privately. So I joined their firm because they were doing public housing at the time and that was the only work there was. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, I, I started there so I could get registered. I didn't have enough um, hours at that point. so. And then I just stayed <laughs> for a long time. So actually, actually, you know what? I, I wanted to take a moment here because unlike other universities, a huge, or architecture programs, a huge percentage of our faculty members maintain practice. And, and I think you, you were just talking about registering the hours. You're talking about just working at all those places. Uh, you know, and, and I'm going to speak as a person affiliated with co-op here. Um, what can you say about uh, the best approach to getting into a firm and building that 
type of experience so that not only can you get licensed, but then so you can actually have a real uh, meaty role. Like a lot of students believe that they should go in and out for four months or like just work here, then a year, and then jump to another firm. But you're, you're talking about working in diversity of firms, but then you, you found a niche in say, you know, work and, and registering up your hours, you know, with, with, with people. How did, how did that kind of click? How, how do you explain why you stayed there? Um. Well, I think I'd had, I'd had enough experience at a variety of sizes of firms. And um, when I started there, it was just a, there was a nice spirit to the place. Um, it was just Steve and Ralph Giannone from, mm -hmm. um, who just graduated and his father was a developer. So that's where the work was coming from. And, um, and Pia Heine, who works for Architects Alliance now. And, oh my gosh, you were working with Pia? Holy yeah. cow, it is a super small world. I, I, I worked with her back when she was out with uh, Zass. So, oh, yeah. super small. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so it was, it was just a nice time to be in a small firm because we, he was just, we were just getting going. We'd finished that competition the year before. Steve had finished grad school in the States and uh, Chris wasn't, hadn't joined yet because he was getting paid somewhere else. So he was just working there in the evenings. So it was a very casual atmosphere and um, uh, it, it was just fun. Like it was, it was a nice environment. It was all people I'd gone to school with. Um, Steve was ahead of me at school, but I knew him from there. And um, it was just, well, oh, and the other reason, um, one of the first jobs we got there. So I'd done a bit of residential work Mm -hmm. to that and I'd done a cottage and the first job we got there was uh, the Trent Child Care Center and we used my cottage as a as one of the project examples from the office <laughs> um, because they were looking for a domestic kind of northern atmosphere for the child mm -hmm. care center and um, and they wanted a female so they used me for my um, you know are you like serious? Gender. You're gonna you're gonna play the, the the gender card right now? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was part of it. I mean, I was quite young at the time and looked very young. Um, but they were they they hired us and and also Larry Richards from Waterloo was on the selection team. He was used to be the chair at Waterloo, and so I think he helped us get on that selection um, group. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so. It was, it was a great opportunity right off the bat. I was engaged from the get-go because mm -hmm. um, I was part of the interview and Steve and I worked on that project together and it was small. It was like doing a big house. It was like a, uh, I think it was 1800, what was it? I can't remember now, 30. It, it, was, it was like a large house. Let's okay. Say, oh, yeah, know, like a thousand square feet, something like that. Hmm. Um, and working with a nice team of people. So I felt engaged and valued right from the, from the beginning, which was nice. So I suspect that's why I stayed. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I was also going to say that um, one thing that I've, like I have a list of all the faculty members and what I know them as like, I don't want to be typecasting or pigeonholing, but one thing that I would like to get out from you is that I would say that you're one of the most connected people in the industry that we've got in our, on our faculty. Um, like the reality is that whether it's you bringing in people for galleries or, or um, you know, various guest lectures or just, you know, when you oversee third year studio, you pull the big names out for your reviews. I, can you offer some advice on networking and connecting with industry? Because for a lot of students, you know, whether it's talking to a prof or certainly talking to capital A registered architects, it's a little bit intimidating, right? So, so, I mean, give some sage Atkinson advice on how to connect and network in, in the industry. Well, I, I guess a lot of those people are just, I'm old enough now that a lot of those people were just people I went to school with and, um, and knew through, through practice um, by moving from different offices and uh, collaborating between offices or working on competitions. So I don't think I actively went out uh, networking. It's just kind of time and um, exposure, um, getting involved in things and participating in things and you, your network starts growing. Um, there's, there's certainly lots of great opportunities for young people now, probably more than, than we had when we were uh, early in our careers. 
um, just through things like BEAT um, mm -hmm. in Toronto and the TSA has some really great um, programs. Uh, the OAA's got a good intern um, support program running. I'm on the, the interns committee at the OAA. I'm mm -hmm. also on the sustainable design committee at the OAA. And, and so joining those organizations is really helpful for meeting people in the business. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, just, I think it, it had, I mean, the Toronto world is a small world. If you're, um, th that might be part of it too. I think my network is really Toronto based. But. Yeah, but, but I, think, I think you're being a little bit modest here because I know that um, students clamor to get letters of reference for you. And sometimes they sit with me and they go, hey, Vince, um, I was thinking about doing X university application and and I'm saying, you know what, don't talk to me, go, go, go get some bigger, bigger name people. And like, you know, whether it's the chair, but you know, you, you, you indirectly find that there's connections with, you know, Cheryl Atkinson, she, she, she has weight. So definitely see if, if you had a studio with her recently, go and talk to her. But I do want to come back to the issue of your, your connectivity um, to your classmates, because I think now I'm going to talk about third year because you've been studio master for multiple studios. Uh, most notably the, I would argue the, penultimate studio, uh, third year studio, which is the integration studio, okay? And many students haven't had you yet um, because they're in first and second year or even in high school. Um, but I think one thing that we all know in architecture is that inevitably there is gonna be group work, right? So you're saying that you've made all these great connections uh, you know, while in school and that's why you're able to really connect with other people in industry. Um, but what would you, what advice would you give to students that really hate working groups? Cause you've seen it in third year, right? You've seen those tragic train wrecks of team, you know, dynamics go down the tubes. Um, what, what kind of advice would you have for students, you know, when they have to collaborate and work together? Well, you gotta get over it because the whole industry is about collaboration. It's, um, it's rare, unless you're going to practice on your own doing small residential projects. Um, it, everything else is collaborative, pretty much, you know, it's just it's the way it works. So, so just to echo and put it in uh, less sweet words, just suck it up and deal with it, kids. Um, so, so that's what, that's what Cheryl's saying. But let's talk about the teaching that you've done, though. At Ryerson, you teach, uh, as I said, um, a lot of studios, but you've also taught several other courses, whether it's the Glass and Architecture Elective or um, things like the Construction Project. So, I mean, can you describe... Um, how, what brought you into teaching? I mean, like you, you were really knocking it out in industry really well. You had a great network of people. You're doing competitions. You're, you know, award-winning architect. Uh, so what, what said, what, what made you say, you know what, I want to challenge. I want to deal with kids that don't know how to draw with line weights. Like what, what, what prompted you to go down that route? Well, I've, t I've taught actually since I was in, in university at, at Waterloo. Um, one of the things that Waterloo does, which we maybe should do more of, is they engage students early on in um, participating in reviews of their peers or their younger, their younger peers. And mm -hmm. um, so I, my first teach, official teaching, so I'd done a bit of that. My first official teaching gig was going to Rome as a TA for the Rome program after I graduated. From oh, you were one of those? You were one of those guys? Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. So and, you're doing the Haldenby uh, hangout? Right. Ah, okay. So, so after I did that, then I started teaching um, regularly at Waterloo and at U of T as a guest critic. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's also where some of the connections come from, because when you're teaching, you also meet another, a, a group of adjunct teachers from um, those schools who work in different offices and, you know, cut across all these different categories so um yeah that's uh, so I'd always taught a bit and Steve also taught at, at uh, Teeple's office and when I started there he was very um amenable to us taking time to teach and so uh, you know particularly when things weren't really busy and there was a tradition of that amongst a lot of people at U of T so mm -hmm. um so yeah, I, I taught there quite a bit. And then uh, as things, as industry got busier and the office got bigger, I taught less. And um, uh, 
I, I don't, I actually, Colin Ripley approached me um, to come and teach out at uh, Ryerson um, when they were starting the grad program. So oh. he was looking for um, a practitioner to mm-hmm. come and teach the uh, winter studio, the one I'm teaching right now. So uh, I think he was actively looking for um, a a practitioner with some teaching experience um, to do a studio that was kind of similar, similar to the third year studio or was envisioned as that at the time. Hmm. So uh, that's how I started at Ryerson. I taught once before just as a critic and um, I'd done one semester at Ryerson as an adjunct before that. And I, it was just at a point in my career where I, I quite enjoyed it because I hadn't taught for a while and it was fun to teach it at a graduate level. And, um, and then uh, uh, after that year, a, a limited term faculty position came up and I applied for that and just took a sabbatical for a year from mm-hmm. the office to kind of rethink what I was doing. And I'd been doing some, on, while I was at Steve's, I'd been doing some residential projects on my own. And I thought, well, you know, this might be a nice time to actually go back out on my own Mm. and um, set up a practice and teach both. So okay. that's, that's how I got to where we are. So, so just let's, let's just take a little bit of a break here on, on this one, because I think that now that we're talking about teaching, um, we often get a lot of hyperbole and rumors about what third year is. And as I said before, third year is a pretty busy studio in that it integrates pretty much all the learning that you've built upon um, since day one in the program. So as a studio master, uh, having done third year, um, you've seen the whole issues of trying to coordinate not only what's going on in the studio among the different faculty members and sections, but also with the other courses. I mean, can you give some advice to students coming into third year um, or at least even in first year that have to prepare? What, what kind of sage tips would you offer them? Um, well, I guess just to try and not... Uh not get overwhelmed by it. I think we've been trying to actually scale back the demands year by year so people don't get overwhelmed. Um, And we're recognizing more and more that a lot of the technical stuff doesn't need to be incorporated in in the first semester. Um, So we have been trying to focus it more on conceptual design and urban design in the first semester. And um, and then going in and, and preparing people for the group work of, of the second semester. And we moved back the um, tectonics course, um, mm-hmm. tectonics to the fall, which I think helps too, to prepare people for a more um, in-depth uh, investigation of the envelope in the, in the winter semester. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually don't think that people are so overwhelmed uh, any more than they are in second year. I think by third year, people are starting to, to be better prepared with their drawing skills. So that's, hmm. that's certainly important. And if um, you're getting ready to go into third year, if you've got your drawing skills under control and um, feel confident about that, that, that helps because you're not spending a huge amount of time worrying about presentation. And there's still some students struggling with that in third year. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think reading and, and uh, looking at things and not just on, at blogs and, and online sources, but go to the library and take out books and read in depth and look at the drawings architects make in addition to, you know, their, their sketches and their conceptual drawings and models and read about how they, what their design process is. Um, so I think that's something that's really important. I think too many of our students just are, are looking at the daily online stream from Dezine and- Art and, Daily. Yeah. So, so, yeah, just slowing down and looking at things, walking the city, being, being aware of what's going on, looking at, at architecture firsthand, um, why people do things the way they do them. It's not, it's not all about composition. Uh, okay. So then would you say that those are the same types of tips you'd offer in general to be a better designer? Because I think a lot of students might not necessarily be thinking about third year, but certainly uh, be a little bit apprehensive about 
their design skills. We got some first years who maybe uh, know how to draw, know how to do 3D modeling, and know how to kind of uh, make the physical models, but um, they're a little bit insecure about their design. So, so as a award-winning architect, what would you say are good are some good tips to be a better designer? Well, I think it is about education. You know, understand educating yourself, and um, I think we do a pretty good preparatory job in the first three years of school to get students ready. Um, but yeah, I think just being aware in space, like really, really looking at how people put things together and the more you make things and come up with those questions yourself, the more you start looking at things in a, in a deep way and, and not a superficial way. Sketching helps look at, you know, Vince, you're a great sketcher. Um, wow. Because sketching in situ helps you slow down and really, really look at things and understand how they're put together and, and why and what are, not just technically how they're put together, but what are the, the compositional um, rules that are governing the thing and how are people using the building? That's another really mm -hmm. important reason to travel and, and, and look at buildings is to, to watch how people, um, you, you know, I'm looking at your image of the SLC here mm -hmm. right now. You know, that building's a, a pretty fascinating building to look at just in terms of how people use it and how they sit on those steps on the front porch and how the sun pours through at certain times of the day and how people move around those interior spaces mm -hmm. to follow the, the track of the sun and how do they, how do they use the seats uh, or the steps as seats and work surfaces so it, it's also like hu studying human behavior as well uh -huh. as the art of making a, an object well i was going to say that uh see cheryl with with your particular background now you've told us good ways to become a designer to get out and see and observe and document mm -hmm. but let's jump right into the next thing which is you know, you've been overseeing over the last year or so uh, the abroad programs. You are the associate chair of mobility and you clearly value that desire to go abroad. So can you just quickly speak to why you see travel as an instrumental part of an architectural education? Okay. Um, well, I was saying that I went to the Rome program in, in, uh, when I was in school uh, in fourth year and we spent... Um, uh, one full semester there, just fully immersed in, in uh, the city and had our studio there in the city and did field trips from there. And it, it was an incredible immersive experience. Um, and uh, yeah, the value of that, any kind of travel is critical for an architect. It's, it's an opportunity to just broaden your perspective on um, how people live in different environments, different climates, different cultural environments, um, different kinds of cities uh, from, you know, intense, intensely dense high rise Asian cities to, um, you know, remote uh, places in the world, rustic places in the mm -hmm. world. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's just an opportunity to expand your mind. I mean, what, what you're doing as an architect, frankly, is studying the environment that people occupy and, and the, the reciprocal relationship between um, the, the places people use and, and how they're constructed. And there's lots of vernacular examples that are fantastic that have evolved over generations to, to be a certain way and um mm -hmm. and trying to figure out I, I think that really comes to the foreground when you're also looking at architecture in situ you you're seeing okay this is this is the way it is because that you know that's a motif i see in in their religious um iconography and um that makes sense because this was happening at that period in history and you know, it puts it puts design in a context and makes it more understandable. And yeah, yeah, I, I would agree 100% on that. And I know that you were talking about other places and how they have programs that go to certain cities. But um, I, I just thought it would be a good opportunity for you as the mobility director to also speak to the fact that, yeah, some other places have 
like certain cities in their programs black pocket mm -hmm. i'd like to think that we got the rest of the damn world so my mm -hmm. first question would be just could you help me out and uh, as the official person that's overseeing this stuff Tell us about all the locations that we've got. Um, and, and I mean, I'm talking about exchanges. Obviously, uh, I don't expect you to start talking about like the fact that individual studios have trips abroad um, for like a week or so. We also got the, uh, say, for example, in Masters, we all go to the Chicago or the Venice Biennale. So we got those things. But I'd like you to just talk to the, the nature of our exchange programs and where we send our students and then also perhaps how, if I were interested in first year or second year, interested in participating in that, how would I go about doing that? And then I got a third question and I'll, 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 I'll remind you, but just where do you see uh, the expansion of the portfolio of uh, institutions that we'd work with uh, moving forward? Just to, you know, get people excited as we, you know, hopefully the pandemic uh, subsides and as we kind of expand the network of our partners around the world, I'd like to know if you could share uh, where else we are looking at. So go ahead. I guess gave you a whole bunch of questions there. Okay. Um, so the, the exchange program we have right now operates in Europe predominantly, well, only, um, but it includes a range of cities. So we um, have students that go to uh, two cities in Germany, to Stuttgart and um, Munich. And uh, so both, you know, major uh, German cities and very excellent programs and, um, you know, great, great locations. We, we send students to the Netherlands, to Delft, TU Delft, which is a, a, a really renowned um, Dutch university that has lots of participating famous Dutch architects teaching there. We, we send students to Paris, to um, uh, La Villette, um, and uh, that's a program that's in French, but uh, doesn't there's a there's a fair amount of English too, so uh, it's a it's a popular one with our students. We also send students to Bergen, Norway, <clears throat> which is another very interesting uh, program in in contrast to the more uh, the mainland uh, European programs because it's in this remote village in Norway, but is a very kind of interesting progressive um, creative program. Uh, and it's in a fjord in a beautiful school that was partially made by the students and incredible views out over the ocean. So, uh, and this little village where they, they, the students live. I mean, it's not that little, but it's, um, it's not Paris. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a real range of locations. We also have a program in Coventry uh, in the UK um, that was mostly for project management, but we're investigating uh, that becoming an architectural program too, because they have a, a regular architecture design oriented school there. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they, uh, they have a range of teaching styles um, and uh, are all very high caliber universities. I, I would say um, the students, well, we, the students, from our program can learn about these programs. Every fall we do a, an event where uh, students come back from these, their, their exchange and they talk about the school that they went to and the pros and mm -hmm. cons and <clears throat> the events they participated in. And the, there's always this fair amount of other travel associated with those trips too, because the, they last for four months, typically four to six months. Some of them are longer than our semester, but they're, uh, they're less intense. So there's, mm -hmm. it, it allows for more time to travel while students are there so they can take these little uh, cheap flights on Ryanair to, to Barcelona on a weekend or um, Berlin or uh, south of France. So there, it, it's, an, it's a nice opportunity to explore the rest of Europe when students are there. So, so you, you've, yeah. you've kind of sold me on this. And I, I believe there's also, I, I'm sorry, it wasn't just Europe, because I think we have Laval too, correct? Yeah, yeah, Laval has a program too in uh, Quebec City. Um, we may be winding that one up because, <laughs> partly because our students don't have adequate French, it seems, to get into Laval. They can get into Paris, but um, 
they, they require a very high level uh, French and everything is offered entirely in French and no one apparently wants, I, I'm not sure, we have had students that have done fine there, but we had two students who weren't able to get in last year and we're just questioning whether it's, um, it's worth pursuing that, that yeah. program there. Um, okay. But we are looking at other, the new programs we're considering are um, uh, to expand the list beyond um, Europe and Canada to um, perhaps Mexico. Mexico City has some great schools and um, exchange programs. South America, um, Brazil, and um, Chile, perhaps, mm -hmm. which also have uh, great contemporary architecture programs and, and pro architecture coming out of those places. Um, and they're, you know, same time zone. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're also talking about potentially uh, India, looking at a program there. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, we can't expand it quickly all at once. And there's been a big disruption this year because of COVID. Um, most of our students were able to finish their programs this semester um, digitally, uh, but they're, they're sequestered, yep. unfortunately, like we are. Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll be able to get back on track to um, expanding it. There was supposed to be a big conference this spring to um, make liaisons with these other universities are exchange team is going to be doing that but oh okay so so, so you kind of got me excited or at least got at least the students excited about the various opportunities so just very quickly how do i even like i'm in second year now for example okay. how, how how do i apply do i just call you up do i do i leave a you know envelope of on, on non-sequential bills in your on door what, like what do i do to get into like my institution of choice or are you going to tell me where i'm going to go like help me out here um, well, we make a presentation, uh, as I said, with the previous students, and then we have exchange students from those schools in our program in the fall. So they also participate in uh, this evening where they talk about the program at their school. So um, there's about currently, every year we expand it a little bit, there's about 24 students that are preparing to go next year. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this event, people uh, rate their first, people who are interested in going, um, do some research, find out what, what, the, what it involves in terms of cost and, um, and accommodation. And um, there's no tuition costs. The tuition costs are the same. It's, it's whatever tuition you would pay to Ryerson just gets, um, allocated to the student that comes to us and their tuition is allocated to our, our students that go there. So there's no exchange of, there's no difference in the tuition cost, but um, there's, there's some housing costs associated with some of the, the programs, most of them in fact, and just the cost of travel. So um, people have to understand that aspect of it. And, uh, and if you decide you want to go, then you make an application to us and pretty much everybody gets to go so far. There's like one or two people and by the time one or two people haven't been, haven't been able to go that um, partly it's just that's how we have enough positions typically for just a little bit less than the number of students that apply. So, um, so I just so want to make sure I answer. Pardon me? So I was just going to say, I, I want to make sure I get a clarity on um, what would you say are reasons why students don't get in? Um, because I think well, that a lot of students are worried about that. Yeah, students put together a portfolio and an application form and a, and a short letter saying why they're interested in exchange. Um, so it, it does depend on those things. Like the bet, if if we're if the spots available are smaller than the applications, then the better students with the better portfolios and the more sophisticated letters are the ones that tend, and, and grades also, so are, are an indicator too. So um, yeah, you have to keep your grades up. I mean, we want to send our best students out so that um, we also get good students coming back. We, we, these students are ambassadors for our school, so 
Oh, that's the that's that's exactly the right thing to say. Good good call on that one. But just just to make sure, like I know some institutions might be really popular, right? Or I might say, oh, I want to go with uh, my buddy so and so to Paris or to Germany, and maybe those spots fill up. How 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 what how much say do I have on that? Like I'm getting some of the questions that were asked uh, for me to bring to you. So yeah, those are uh, you know it's like I spent about a week actually with all the different applications and tried to give people their uh, first or second choice in most cases. And it doesn't always work out because some schools, some of the more popular schools don't have enough spaces for, for all the people who want to go there. But so those, I tend to put the, the students with either higher marks or better portfolios um, in, in the top choice schools. Um, but they're all good, you know, they're all good schools for various reasons. Nobody's had a bad experience that I've heard so yeah. far. They all have enjoyed their time there and um, learned a lot and uh, loved the travel and loved the experience. Um, Cheryl, I have another question here and uh, the student was asking, because they're in third year and they're wondering uh, about the grade situation. They were asking, do the grades uh, come as pass-fail? Do they impact my application ability to graduate? Uh, oh, sorry, apply to grad schools. Um, I did mention to them that some programs do force them to graduate later because of just the off timing, but I think some of the students were asking about just the grades. Right, um, so it, it is, you will get graded by the um, program, but that grade is, is treated as a pass-fail. On ter in terms of your transcripts, so it won't it, it won't better your transcript or worsen your transcript. It, it just stays the same as it was before you left. So good reasons to get good marks before you go. Um, so boost up that third year grade. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that answers that question. And the other question was um, graduation. Yeah. The the latest program for graduates. Um, if I recall, is Stuttgart. The, mm -hmm. the students come back from Stuttgart the latest. They go right into August. Mm -hmm. And, um, but we, so none of the exchange program students actually can graduate in the spring, but they all can graduate in the fall. And we do make sure if they, if they apply to our program in, uh, at Ryerson, mm -hmm. we, we get the um, transcripts early enough digitally that we know that they've passed and everybody typically passes. Um, and uh, so we, if we just let our own people know that the transcripts are coming and they let them, they let them through for the fall convocation and typically into our own grad school in the fall. Okay. That's, that's good because a lot of people I, were I asking about that. Yeah. I can't guarantee that for other schools, um, right? If you apply to U of T or something and you're not getting your transcript and you go to Stuttgart and you're not getting your transcript till uh, your official transcript till sometime in mid September, that could be a problem. Okay. So that's good to know because I think a lot of people were just, sitting on that because some people just want to go straight from fourth year into master's and they just weren't sure about that kind of graduation and also i should mention ladies and gentlemen the graduation in the fall would happen in october um so uh, and and the typical graduation in the summer happens uh middle of june thereabouts right mm -hmm. so cheryl I, I i now i want to come back to you as a prof and just using using this as a learning moment right You've taught for lots, lots of years, um, not to make you sound old, but I'm just saying, you know, we, bo we both, have, yeah, but we, we both paid our time. So, so can you give me some, an example of uh, the worst piece of architecture? And I'm talking about a built piece um, that would serve as a really good learning moment. Um, I, I've asked a lot of faculty members because we, we both know that students learn better from car wrecks and train wrecks than they do from like, you know, public safety announcements. So can you give a good example of a building that's so bad in your in your opinion and, and just tell us what students could learn from it? So bad that I've done? Or no, 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 we've all done some bad things. We just don't talk about them. But uh, I'm talking about just as a, as a critic of the whole entire portfolio of architecture around the world. You've seen the Globe's architecture. And right. I was just wondering if you had a good piece that, you know, it could be a learning moment that, that students from grad school all the way down to like first year or high school could really learn from. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a, 
I don't know. There's a lot of bad architecture right there. To, oh, come to on. Know. Stay out of the generalities. <laughs> like, um, it, it's, it, I'll just be, I'll, while you think about this, I'll, I'll just put it out here because I was just interviewing with um, a couple of our colleagues and they could only think of bad buildings on campus, which is kind of funny. Um, and then, of course, other faculty members were saying, well, I can only pick of, think of the um, architecture projects that are done by local architects. And I was like, no, 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 don't say that. Don't <laughs> name names necessarily, right? Because there they're are co-op employers. And then at, at the other extreme, you've got um, people that are using ambiguities. Like I, I just finished an interview with Elsa Lam from Canadian Architect. And she was like, I'm not going to name any buildings. I'm not, I'm not going to get my butt in trouble. So she said, uh, suburbia. And I was like, what? Come on, that's a cop out, right? So come on, you've seen some bad architecture. And just to plant the seeds on that one, you're going to tell me a real building. And then I'm going to also ask you, like, what's the worst thing you've ever seen in studio? So help me out with the first real build stuff first. Well, that, now you've set it up. I'm kind of starting to think, okay, I can't say that building because I might know that person or it might be somebody that's <laughs> for all the lambs reasons. That's, that's tough. I'm thinking of local things. So I guess I, gotta, I have to think of... Okay, fine. I'm pretty things. sure that the local guys, they won't be offended because you're going to be all nice and polite about it. And like, you know, people understand the kind of restrictions and parameters that they work in. Like I've done some terrible buildings where I go, ooh... That, that, that was because they cut the budget by 14 or so million dollars. So, I mean, that's why it looks like that, right? Um, but, uh, I mean, come on, it's okay, Cheryl, come on. Well, I mean, there's tons of bad buildings everywhere, you know, there's, there, I, I guess. Don't, don't say like a Teeple or a Diamond Schmidt building, because that's just going to get awkward, man. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know, it's hard to, uh, I guess I could, you know, maybe, uh, the Liebeskin ROM, I think, is not a great building. That could have been an amazing building. So just just to, again, for those that aren't familiar with it, now we are two for two. We have two profs now that say Liebeskin's ROM crystal is is, is atrocious. Um, and again, that's the weird crystal that smacked, the Michael Leachian crystal that smacked onto the side of the historic Royal Ontario Museum. You can look it up. Um, but Cheryl, why? Why is it so inappropriate? Why is it so bad? What, what should I learn from it? Well, I think because it was just purely a sculptural design from the, you know, it was an idea that had nothing to do with the specific context or program. It's, it's a shape he's used on several other buildings that came with the architect. So it's not specific. It's not um, coming out of uh, the fact it was a museum, despite the fact he said it was a crystal and it's a, it's a natural history museum. It also makes terrible spaces inside, you know, just the, the kind of compromised gallery spaces that come from an angular building like that with, doesn't take into consideration the, the program or for people or for the objects that have to be displayed in it. And, and then the fact that in the end they, ran, they spent so much money on this extraordinary shape and all the steel that went into making it happen um, that they actually couldn't seem to get a very good skin out of it. And there was a yep. little natural light in the building. So when you get up to the top levels of it and there's, there should be an opportunity to experience these fantastic sculptural spaces from the inside and they're hanging textiles in it and they've got all the skylights covered over with, uh, with, um, blackout blinds to protect the objects and so you don't you don't get to experience the space yeah you know that's a really good point like i, I think it's disappointing it right you know it's not that i i don't like the idea of a sculptural building i think it's totally fantastic in the right place and, and you know we were in the odain do you want to hear a good building now mm -hmm. yeah okay sure okay we were in vancouver recently and went to um whistler to see the odain art gallery by mm -hmm. Fat cows, and it's interesting because that's a kind of similar party. It's a very sculpted, lozenge-shaped building that floats above the ground, but um, because it's in a floodplain, like it's yeah. got a reason to to have that shape. It's in a floodplain and it has to sit up above the the ground, and it mm -hmm. sits in its context so beautifully. It's surrounded by this gravel um, uh, kind of well, an, a large boulder, like small pebbles, like a, 
I'm contradicting myself. I, I think it's a bit of an alluvial plain. I think that's what they were yeah. trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, it just kind of, it sits on these very elegantly um, uh, designed legs and floats above this plain and you enter it off a bridge through this, this forest. And um, it's, it's just exquisitely detailed and materially rich and um, beautiful natural light coming through the thing. It's just thoughtful and, and fully considered and, and uh, rigorous uh, mm -hmm. in the way it's executed. Uh, so, and it, it, it's specific to its place. It's not just um, an adopted idea that, you know, that a brand, which I think is the issue with the Liebeskin project yes. is brand. And uh, this is, um, you know, the pad cows do different things every time they do a building. So mm -hmm. this is this particular shape made sense because of its context. Yeah, they're, they're probably a really good example of what Canadian architects could and should be. But let's come back to the education of Canadian architects. Come back to studio. Give okay. me some train wrecks. Give me some, give me something that would like tell a student that's do, that's listening to this right now while they're doing their final studio project. Okay, I'm not going to do that then. <laughs> like, I want you to give train wreck stories, whether it's you know students um, making models out of the least appropriate materials, or whether it's you know the situation where a kid plagiarizes and just does it wrong. I mean, give give me something good. Hmm. Um, you know, there's, I, I can't think of a complete disaster of a project, really. How I, is it that you've been teaching architecture and you haven't had one of those yet? Come all right. on. All right. Well, I try not to remember them, I guess, as much as the good ones. Um, they're, you know, students sometimes get, uh, they value in a, potentially they value innovation more than uh, other other things. They don't necessarily recognize that you can make something beautiful out of a, a, an idea that maybe has existed before. It's you taking your, uh, your specific skill and, and um, putting it in its specific program and, and site and relationships and making it yours. Sometimes students will do things that are kind of bizarre just for the sake of being bizarre. So maybe that's relating to the, the uh, Liebeskin example again. So um, they, they think we're looking for, when, when we talk about innovation, they sometimes think we're talking about crazy, <laughs> crazy weird shapes and, mm -hmm. and, and surfaces or, and, and again, not thinking about how how's this building not going to look like an eyesore in 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now is it gonna is it gonna be like oh that's one of those buildings from 2019 you know with yeah. uh, with the 30 degree angle here and the you know wrapping facade element or whatever whatever the motif is but mm -hmm. you know architecture follows fashion trends just like fashion follows fashion trends and you but architecture shouldn't because fashion goes away sometimes it comes back lots of times it comes back and it lasts a few seasons and then it goes away again but buildings have to keep looking appropriate for ideally centuries you know you want what you do to still look uh viable in the future so yeah, I was gonna say that's a really good comment. <laughs> no, but that, that I know that you you didn't uh, out any bad student project explicitly, but I think you, there is a good message there, where a lot of students design their buildings for the deadline and for what I think sometimes what they believe profs want, um, mm -hmm. and very rarely do they look ten minutes after a review, let alone ten years after a project is built. So I think that's a very good uh, message for all of our students to just remember that what they design, even if it's in a hypothetical studio condition, it, it should be designed such that it lasts beyond the project deadline, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and sometimes that's about really looking at the more finer grained aspects of a building. Mm -hmm. We all like historic buildings. And why do we like historic buildings? Well, because they've, they've got authenticity, they've got uh, solidity, they've got depth, they've got character, they've got 
thickness. They've got variety, right? They're not drive-by things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their interest is at a more subtle level. And I think because we're so fascinated by the image at the moment and the, the distant flyby image, I think students get seduced by the, often by things that are, are simply trying to catch your attention rather from, from a short, mm. short uh, uh, impression. Yes. Yeah. So, it's that superficiality, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But while we're talking about superficiality, I want to close this off by, is there anything you want the students or general public to know about you that they don't necessarily pick up in say your lectures or uh, your, the way you teach or in studio? Because I, I think that now more than ever, we really got to make sure that the student population knows that we're accessible. You know, I'd like to think we're cool, but obviously our students don't think so, but you know, that we're accessible, pretty nice people. So give some, give something, uh, if you, if you're willing, share something that we might not otherwise have known about you. You mean like hobbies? Or like a, I don't know, unseen talent or extra digits. I mean, you, you tell me what you think. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, I, I like to do other things besides architecture. I, now my kids are grown up. I've got more time to do other things. So I, um, I play tennis. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I forgot. That's another hobby. Uh, for all the guy profs, it tends to be that everyone wants to be uh, a, 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 like, you know, a rush kind of guitarist. And yes. for all the female profs, it seems like, you know, all of you guys like have a little tennis league or something going on. It's, it's, it's strange <laughs> to me. Yeah. So that's something I've just taken up again. I used to play when I was younger, but just started taking it up again in the last eight years. And I play, I'm playing piano again. I used to play piano, but I haven't done that for a long time. And I now have a real piano. And so I'm starting to uh, do that again. And, and I sing in a choir. Uh, see, that was, I was, I was going to hope you're going to say that because <laughs> everyone now knows on the record that you sing. So I'm getting your ass down for the, karaoke night uh at some point um just just putting that out there because you just for the record cheryl atkinson i asked her about karaoke night and she said she'd be interested of course she had choir practice that day so that's why she didn't make it out for the last uh karaoke night but she has promised that once this is all over she is going to get her butt down for faculty uh team karaoke correct i'm better in a in a blending in a group i would say than uh singing solo I, don't, I don't worry listen if you've heard some of our students sing cheryl you will blend more than enough trust me um it's it's fine anyways uh thank you again for your time it's a long uh, uh bit of an interview but i do appreciate this I, I certainly think the students will appreciate this and um any last words for the students just yeah enjoy your time at school i think you're you may not realize it but it's it's one of the most productive and creative periods that you'll have in your life. And it should carry you forward uh, into a very interesting career. So, I, you know, just keep working on it. That It is phenomenal to see how much better people are uh, in such a short period of time. Like just working with the, the graduate students now, man, like they, they've come so far mm -hmm. in such a short period of time. So... Shout out to the grad students that you're teaching right there with Will. Um, and I can, I can attest to that, yes. Uh, I mean, every one of you uh, listening, if you look at the stuff that you came in uh, in September with and look at what you're doing right now, you should step back and say, wow, I've learned a lot and it shows in my work. If it doesn't, get ready for an F-bomb. Or wait, no, they can get a watch out pass, I think nowadays. So, well, I mean, we'll see. Anyways, Cheryl, thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay. Keep doing the good interviews. Thanks. Thanks. Take care.